What's that song? I'm tired of using technology. I'm tired of using technology. Oh, no. Is that a real song? Am I just like, or did I just make up those lyrics because I f***ing hate technology? Oh, Daft Punk? No, this was the song. It was not the Daft Punk song. Do you remember this? That's, that's the anthem of the pandemic, right? <laughs> Maybe we can pay 50 Cent a million dollars and use that as our theme song today. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Rook. We've got more election results to discuss on today's show. Virginia and New Jersey held their primaries for state elections last week, and Democrats' choices in Virginia seem to continue a trend. The party's primary voters are choosing more establishment candidates over further left options. And in New Jersey, Republicans rejected the most ardently Trump-aligned candidate for governor. We'll discuss what those races can tell us about where the parties are headed in the Biden years. And we're also gonna talk about the politics of taxes, which will be way more interesting than that sounds, I promise. ProPublica just released a major investigation detailing how little the wealthiest Americans pay in taxes. And that comes as Republicans and Democrats in the Senate were already haggling over how to pay for a potential infrastructure package. So what are the current fault lines on taxes? And what does that tell us about where any compromise might be found? And we've also got a good use of polling or bad use of polling example for you. So let's get to it. Here with me to discuss it all, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is elections analyst, Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. And Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell. Hello, Tia. Hey. Good to have you with us. I should just like stipulate, we spent so long trying to connect us all on our like remote technologies this morning. Starting a podcast like early on a Monday, recording a podcast early on a Monday is always an aggressive way to start a week. But when you have so many technical failures, it's just wild. So how's everyone doing? You ready to record a podcast? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Ready. All right, let's do this. At least it's a beautiful day. Well, at least in New York. I know we're all in different places. So Today's good use of polling or bad use of polling example is a bit of a twist. Instead of asking Americans what they think, a Pew poll released last week asks people abroad what they think of America. And their title reads, quote, America's image abroad rebounds with transition from Trump to Biden. And then subheadline is, but many raise concerns about the health of U.S. political system. So their survey data shows that According to them, looking at 12 nations surveyed both this year and in 2020, a median of 75% expressed confidence in Biden compared with 17% for Trump last year. Now, this year's poll was conducted in 16 advanced economies using telephone surveys only during the pandemic. And while they polled countries in North America, Europe, and the Asia Pacific region, they focused most heavily on Europe. So it's a pretty small sample, and the views of the country writ large seem to be very tied to whoever the president is. So I'm curious for what you guys think, because it's got plenty of attention from, you know, especially as the G7 was happening over the weekend, and Biden is reaching out to the leaders of foreign nations. Is this a good use of polling or bad use of polling? I think it's generally a a good use of polling. You know, you're trying to... Bad! (laughs) Ooh, you're trying to measure public opinion, other countries, and what they think about us. We ask our citizens what they think about other countries. So, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with this. It's not that I see something wrong with it. I'm just not sure what it tells us. On the one hand, I completely understand the sense that, you know, Trump spent his presidency bashing NATO. So, yeah, I think these countries that are overwhelmingly involved in NATO might be a little bit more positive on the Biden administration. That said, as Galen was hinting in the question, a lot of this polling really varies on who's in office, with Democrats tending to do better abroad. So I'm not entirely sure, again, the fact that we saw such a stark reversal, you know, that is headline worthy. And I understand why the poll caught on. But like, 
what it really tells us, and in particular, what it tells us about what the U.S. will actually do in regards to foreign policy, I think is very shallow. In particular, because another question that I'm hoping we'll get into is it asked countries whether they think the U.S. takes their best interest at heart when drafting foreign policy. And almost all of them, aside from Germany, said no. And that's been true since 2002, when Pew first asked this question. So I think that kind of underscores they might think better of the U.S., but they're not necessarily thinking the U.S. is going to treat them as equal partners when it comes to foreign policy. I agree with both of you guys. I mean, I think it's a fine poll. Even domestically, we poll on favorable, unfavorable of our elected officials and things like that. But what I thought was interesting is the question about the strength of American democracy. Even with a more popular president in place, people still think our American democracy is very fragile. I do think people in other countries pay more attention to America than Americans pay to other countries. And that's also really, really interesting to see a poll that plays that out. To me, looking at this poll, one, it seemed relatively expected and not all that nuanced in the sense that basically Bush and Trump received approximately the same approval abroad and Obama and Biden received approximately the same approval abroad. So do these countries, specifically largely European countries, just like Democrats and not like Republicans? Does it actually tell us something unique about the Trump presidency or the Biden presidency? And likewise, the title reads, America's image abroad rebounds. But they also only polled 12 countries. Well, 12 countries in 2020 and then 16 countries in 2021. Is it fair to make that kind of a broad claim only polling these nations? Like, why weren't they polling more countries in South America, Africa, more countries in Asia? Why are they only polling these quote-unquote advanced economies? I think essentially the headline should have said, America's image with its allies rebounds. Because that's really what this poll is measuring in a lot of ways, is who are the U.S.'s partners and who are their allies? Because to your point, like, there isn't a country from South America. There's not a country from Africa represented. There's no country from the Middle East. Like, I'd be very curious for how those countries thought about America, or China for that matter. And I don't believe Pew really got into great detail on, like, why these countries... Yeah, I mean, I suspect that this was timed somewhat. I mean, the release is obviously with the G7 in mind as they met over the weekend. I also think it is worth thinking about the practical side. It's probably easier to poll these countries. I actually looked this up, and foreign polling firms cannot conduct polls directly in China. You have to find a Chinese partner to do anything. So I just think that these are probably countries that, because they are mostly politically open, are easier to poll, and... This doesn't to say that they don't poll countries that maybe aren't so open. I did find some polling on Russian attitudes toward the U.S. from like 2019 by Pew. So they do this. They do poll other countries. They've polled India before to ask them what they think about Americans. But I think getting to Sarah's point, maybe the headline would have been better if it had been allies and partners as the focus. But I do think it's also just easier to poll those places. And in terms of like, American foreign policy, the people that we work with, the countries that we work with, our partners, how they view us is important. So I could see why they they also wanted to focus on these places. Yeah, I was going to say, in looking at this poll, maybe part of how we judge good use of polling or bad use of polling is whether the information that we find out matters. And so to put it bluntly, like, why does it matter whether or not other countries like us? I don't think whether countries like us matters. But I think international affairs and diplomacy and our partners, that matters. And so in that way, how America is perceived in those partner countries will affect whoever's president at the time. And there, you know, it could make it easier or harder to continue to work with those other nations because they've got a political game to play with their constituents back home, just like Joe Biden does. Again, we all know that President Trump didn't excel in that area, nor did he seem like he wanted to excel in that area. It was part of his brand that he was very nationalist and very much, I'm focused on America and not these other countries. But it's also clear that President Biden wants to do differently and wants to rebuild those relationships. So in that way, I think it does tell us that at least the electorate the representative electorate in these partner nations seem to be open to him. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. What I thought was interesting, too, was Pew asked whether they were confident in Biden and whether they had a positive view of America. And so there was about a 13-point gap where people were more likely to say they were confident in Biden than actually having a positive view of the U.S. And I thought that was interesting because I think it gets to your point that, like, Trump was so uniquely bad at this that even in these countries where they don't necessarily think of U.S. democracy positively, they still think Biden, they have confidence that he'll do a good job in the world arena. So one of the questions that stuck out, especially because, as I mentioned, the polling between Obama and Biden is so similar, and the polling between Bush and Trump is so similar that obviously important things happen during those presidencies that you would think would shape public opinion abroad, namely the Iraq War, also Trump's America First policies, and then just kind of Biden and Obama really rhetorically and in terms of like how they choose to travel and talk to other nations or trying to say like, hey, we're your partner, et cetera, particularly among European countries, advanced economy, nations, G7, G20, et cetera. So like those aren't necessarily all that surprising. But the thing that did not change with a new president coming in is how people abroad think about the state of our democracy, because it hasn't really rebounded with Biden taking office. And according to this poll, the median across the 16 nations polled in 2021, the majority, 57%, said that our democracy used to be a good example, but has not been in recent years. 23% said has never been a good example. And then only 17% say today is a good example for other countries to follow. So what do we make of that? And what repercussions are there for that kind of opinion? I go back to, and this is something that I think I've realized as a local reporter covering like Georgia politics, the number of like radio stations and podcasts in other countries that not just care about American politics on a national level, but they wanted to know about like the Georgia Senate runoffs. And that to me is different. Again, other countries are watching America and that means they're getting the news about January 6th. They're getting the news about all the states that are now passing laws to make it harder for people to vote or easier to overturn elections in the future. So I think, again, just like I can't speak for you guys, but me as someone who's plugged in, I think our democracy is pretty fragile right now. But what I find surprising is that people in other nations are watching what's going on in America, and it looks like they're starting to draw some of those same conclusions which to me is a little bit different because most Americans, me included, can give you like maybe a general understanding of British government or like a general understanding that, yeah, there's a new prime minister in Israel. But can I drill it down to like Israeli democracy more or less firm than it has been in recent history? I don't know most Americans are paying that much attention to other nations, but other nations really are paying attention to America. I don't think you can overstate how much more attention other countries pay to U.S. politics than Americans pay to domestic politics in other countries. And that just really comes down to the fact that U.S. is the still the most like powerful country in the world, the biggest economy, the, all these various things that make it the center of the universe. I'm saying that from like personal experience. This always has stuck out to me. Like When I studied abroad in college in Spain for a semester, it was during the 2008 Democratic presidential primary. And I swear, so many Spaniards that I met would ask me what my opinion was about this content, you know, this American election. Obviously, that was like a high profile thing. But I think also getting back to what T was saying, I'm sure January 6th had massive coverage all over the world. You know, I know Charlottesville did. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville in 2017 at the white supremacist rally and riot, basically, uh, had massive coverage all over the world. You know, this stuff gets a lot of attention. And so, other countries are very aware of what's going on in the U.S. and it doesn't surprise me, given recent events, that they're not terribly positive about the state of U.S. democracy. Yeah. The perks and downsides of being a, a superpower, right? I think there's something else here in the sense, and we're going to have a piece on the site later this week going into detail here, but the U.S. is also kind of uniquely bad in where it is right now with anti-democratic backsliding. So we have like a comparative politics piece, which to longtime 538 readers might be a bit different because we don't do a lot of that, echoing Tia and Jeffrey's point, just 
we don't in terms of Americans and how we think about world politics. But essentially that piece finds that yes, hyperpartisanship, illiberalism, thanks to social media, the internet, that's true in other Western democracies as well, but it's uniquely bad and ominous here in the U.S. And I think this poll, you know, is underscoring other polls that are asking Americans about their views of democracy in the U.S. and just picking up on a real trend that people see the fragility of where our democracy currently is. All right. So to put a bow on this, is it like Good use of polling, but change the framing because this doesn't really tell us what the views of America are abroad. It just tells us what our allies think of us. I could get behind that. Or does anyone want to say just bad use of polling? Meh. Meh. Okay, we got a meh from Sarah. Jeffrey, where do you come down? Still good? Yeah, I mean, I still think it's a good use of polling at the end of the day. I mean, it it reflects something about attitudes abroad and even those crazy shifts from Trump to Biden or Bush to Obama. uh, It does say something, even if it's not a surprise. Tia? I'm with Sarah. Let's just fix the headline. All right. There we go. I like it. Let's talk about the primary elections in Virginia and New Jersey. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Virginia and New Jersey are the only two states that hold gubernatorial and state legislative elections this year, and they both had primaries last Tuesday. Those elections were something of a test among competing parts of the two parties and maybe a preview of the kinds of candidates who will run in 2020. In Virginia, the Democratic gubernatorial primary pitted an establishment Democrat in former Governor Terry McAuliffe against more progressive options and candidates of color. And in New Jersey, Republican voters chose between gubernatorial candidates with varying degrees of alignments with Trump. The candidate who won, Jack Chitterelli, had called Trump a charlatan and did acknowledge that Biden won the election, which I guess is now some kind of test of how Republican or how Trumpy you are, I guess that makes sense. But let's begin with Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe won with 60% of the vote. Jeff, you're, of course, based in Virginia. What were the dynamics of that race, and how did his performance compare with expectations? Well, you know, in Virginia, elected incumbent governors cannot immediately seek re-election. So McAuliffe won the governorship in 2013, couldn't run again in 2017, and now he wants his old job back, is running again. And so Usually you don't have sort of a incumbency factor in a gubernatorial primary in Virginia, but because McAuliffe had been governor recently and Northam in a lot of ways was in part a continuation of sort of a McAuliffe brand of politics, you might say, uh, center-left establishment style, but this time with the Democratic-controlled legislature, which let Northam do a lot. I think because of that, you had sort of this weird incumbency vibe that you don't normally have. And I think that helped out McAuliffe a great deal. He left office as a relatively popular governor, very popular among Democrats. And I think that made it really tough for the two principal opponents he had in the primary, former state delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy and state senator Jennifer McClellan. And who made up McAuliffe's coalition? Well, I think at the end of the day, you have to say, it's kind of hard to peg. We don't have an exit poll or anything in the sense that McAuliffe won every single county or city in the state. He won a majority in all but a handful. And the only places he didn't win a majority in were a couple of college towns like Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is, Harrisonburg City, where James Madison University is. And we saw Bernie Sanders do well in those places, for instance, in the 2020 presidential primary in Virginia. They were among the only places he carried in the state. And then also in the city of Richmond, McAuliffe won there, but he got less than a majority of the vote. But that's also where Jennifer McClellan is from, uh, as part of where she represents in the state Senate. So I'm sure that played a role as well. So I think McAuliffe generally had broad support is sort of the larger takeaway. I'm curious, Sarah and Tia, looking at this race, is it fair to draw broader conclusions about where the Democratic Party is headed and the kinds of politicians that the Democratic Party prefers? Is this all about name recognition? Does it seem like 
there was a policy debate and Democratic voters in Virginia chose the more moderate path. How are you digesting these results? I think that we've already talked about how McAuliffe came in very much like an incumbent. So it was going to be hard for anyone to beat him, particularly because there were so many other candidates and there was not just one opposition candidate. But I also think that what it tells us is that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party hasn't yet been able to take over in the more broader races, statewide races, where you've got to win a big chunk of the electorate. Perhaps in some years down the road, as progressives get more politically involved, have a little bit more money to raise and spend on their candidates and things like that, I think that could change in the future. But right now, it's still tough for progressives to break through in, again, these bigger races. You talk about your Senate races, your presidential races, and these governorships. I think that's exactly right. Galen, you had us read an editorial from Paul Waldman at the Washington Post, and he had this line where he said, moderate Democrats are winning elections, progressives are winning the war. And I think that's exactly right in the sense that to describe Biden and McAuliffe even as super moderate center of the road candidates, I think is misleading in the sense that Biden's been a far more liberal president than his record would suggest. And presumably, if McAuliffe is reelected, I think the same will be true of him. I mean, even looking at his counterpart, Northam, as Jeff was saying, Virginia's passed a lot of really progressive things in his time as governor. They abolished the death penalty, legalized marijuana, increased the minimum wage, passed police reform laws. They passed a state voting rights act, new gun safety laws. The list goes on and on. And so I think it's the progressive candidates, which we've also been tracking, you know, the last time we did this was in the primary in 2020. And the overall stat is, yes, there are people like Marie Newman, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush, but they're the exception, not the norm. And so electorally, I don't think progressives are showing that they have power at the ballot box. But when it comes to setting policy agendas, particularly given that they're still a minority of the party in terms of elected representatives, I think they're punching above their weight and have a lot of influence. I also think there's not a whole, whole lot of daylight between progressives and what we consider establishment. There are some differences, but what Biden and McAuliffe are showing us, because we're saying we expect them to fall in line with a lot of things that progressives want. So when it comes to elections and voting reform and criminal justice reform, a lot of things progressives and more establishment candidates probably agree upon. And then those things that are true tests of who's the progressives in the party, those things are still a little bit more fringe, such as defund the police or abolishing the police versus reform. Those are the things that will create some division. But among the electorate, there's still division in defunding the police and abolishing law enforcement agencies isn't necessarily what most Democrats are wanting their candidates to do at the time. So I think that also it's like even these establishment candidates, their platforms are what most Democrats will agree with. One of the things that hangs over a race like this where you have older white guy who's been around for a long time running against primarily two women of color were the main opposition. There's sort of what we talked a lot about in the 2020 presidential primary of electability and this idea of like, well, the white guy has a better chance of winning in the general election. We can debate about whether that's true or not. But I do think that someone like McAuliffe, what he brought to the table was some of what Biden brought to the table for the primary electorate, which was, oh, well, if we want to win, we know that he might have the best shot of winning the general election. He checks off a lot of boxes for things that we like. Let's go with with him, as, as Tia said, tried and true, right? And so I think that McAuliffe and Biden are a very interesting comparison. And I think at the end of the day, an issue like the minimum wage sort of shows the, the idea that there isn't a ton of daylight. Virginia recently passed legislation to raise the minimum wage in the state, and it's slowly going to go up. And eventually, if the General Assembly acts again, it will rise to $15, I think, in 2026. All the candidates basically wanted to make that happen faster uh, in the Democratic primary, and it was mainly a debate about just how fast. 
And even McAuliffe actually wasn't necessarily the person calling for it to be the slowest rise. So I think there was general agreement that the minimum wage should be $15 among the entire Democratic field. And I think that sort of gets the idea that it's there's some pretty small gradients. And maybe it shows that, yeah, progressives have won to some extent on, on a lot of these policy debates. OK, I think that this is an interesting point because the progressives within the party don't think that the party is progressive. So not only did McAuliffe win that primary overwhelmingly, 60%, but there were also incumbents in the state legislature in Virginia who lost their primary to more moderate candidates who were challenging them as being too progressive, right? So it's not just name recognition or incumbency. So here's a quote from the incumbent delegate who lost, Ibrahim Samira, and there were more than one incumbent delegates that lost. He's quoted as saying, people like myself who are grassroots funded and don't take corporate money are not able to compete effectively. He went on to say the party is not progressive. And likewise, you do see in the House Democrats who were admonishing Ilhan Omar last week. It seems like, or at the very least, progressives feel like there is a division. So how does that fit into this broader dynamic of like, well, it seems like the establishment is just swallowing up the ideas of the left and packaging them in a more like electorally palatable package, a more electable package or whatever, versus the progressives who say, no, this isn't a progressive party. I would tell the progressives, do you want to win elections or do you want to win on policy? Because you just said, well, what's happening is these establishment figures are taking these progressive policies and packaging in a way that is palatable so that they can get it done. Welcome to governing people. That's what I think progressives struggle with. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but their language sometimes, look at Representative Omar, their language can turn people off. And that makes it harder for them to govern when it comes down to actually getting something done. And so when voters have to go to the polls, they have to decide, do I want someone who's saying what I want, pushing for what I want, even if that means they ruffle some feathers, which means the feather rufflers might have a harder time building a coalition, which one do you want? Do you want the coalition building to get done what you can, or do you want someone to ruffle the feathers and try to go as far as you can pull people? And that is an ideological split in the Democratic Party, and we've seen that play out with the squad and with some of the disagreements that have slowed down the process of legislating in Washington. I guess I'm a little bit old school in my journalism, watching it happen, I feel like those folks who are building coalitions, the way government is structured now, they're the ones who are able to get something done, whereas the progressives are more on messaging, but haven't really shown an ability to get it done. Every one of these races is sort of race by race. Like there are some idiosyncrasies to every single one of them. But I do think it's interesting because so what happened on the Democratic side in the House of Delegates, the lower chamber, and the state legislature is that four Democratic incumbents lost renomination. One of the most centrist members, and he actually lost to a, a young black man down in Tidewater, Virginia, in the southeast corner of the state, who was running to his left. So that would seemingly run against this notion. But the other three losers were all, I think, viewed as pretty progressive incumbents. However, I think they also all had a bit of an abrasive style, getting to Tia's point. And I think that Ibrahim Samira, who you mentioned, Galen, he, for instance, now former President Trump, gave a speech at Jamestown in 2019 for the 400th anniversary of the Virginia House of Burgesses. Samira interrupted the speech, basically just yelling at him, and tweeted out about it like right after. And it looked like a pretty obvious political ploy to gain attention. And I think that kind of thing rubbed people the wrong way. And the other two, uh, Mark Levine and Lee Carter, were both running for statewide office um, because of a quirk in Virginia law. You can run for re-election while also running for statewide office. And I think that also probably hurt them, but their abrasive styles probably didn't help either. So that gets to Tia's point that I think that did get them into some trouble, whereas you did actually see a progressive challenger win in another place. Was Samira's district competitive, Jeff, like in a general election? No, it's a pretty safe Democratic district at this point. Got it. Because that cuts against what I was going to say, which is what I feel like most success for progressives has been concentrated in very blue areas where they take out incumbents. And I realized Samira was an incumbent who lost. So that kind of is, at this point, 
really the first of its... So I'm thinking back to 2020 and the squad, they all won re-election. Granted, I realize this is a different chamber. It's specific to Virginia, the lower chamber there. But that is interesting where you have kind of the reversal of that trend where so far progressives have had the most success running in very blue districts and taking down more centrist incumbents. I do just want to say in the squad's defense, because we, for very reasonable reasons, we talk about them being progressive Most of the squad, yes, their policies are progressive, and particularly when it comes to AOC, she is outspoken. She's out there. She's willing to buck the leadership. But really, Representative Omar is different from the squad in that she said things that have been considered problematic on both sides of the aisle. And not that people haven't been upset by what other members of the squad have said, but they haven't necessarily crossed the line as the way Representative Omar is perceived to have crossed the line. And so I do think in that way, Representative Omar has created a challenge for herself that other members of the squad haven't created for themselves when it comes to electability in the future. And I just want to put that out there because I know it's easy to talk about them all the same, but Representative Omar's issues more recently Yes, the squad stands behind her and other people stand behind her, too. But just politically, she's kind of in a different basket than them right now. It's interesting. It seems like what I'm hearing is that a lot of what matters in politics and who succeeds is framing, tone, packaging. Like the policy debates seem to be less than the style debates almost. Is that what I'm sensing from everyone on the left today? I mean, I think it's gradients to some extent. I think you're going to have a lot of Democrats who say they aren't in favor of the Green New Deal, but they'll tell you that there's like a massive problem with climate change and that things need to change to address it. The Green New Deal is maybe a nice framework to think about, but in and of itself, it's not the solution on its own or something, or it's specifically not the right way to go about it. So I think maybe on broad goal terms, Democrats are largely in agreement in a lot of ways. A lot of it goes into style and tone, probably. And it seems like this has been Republicans' argument in some ways, is that Biden is a Trojan horse, and they may try to apply this to other candidates as well, is that basically they're taking the policy positions of the further left and packaging them more palatably. Does it seem like that argument is winning? Because it it seems like we're acknowledging that to some extent that argument is true. Like, does it seem as though that knowledge is winning or catching on with voters at all? I feel like What we're talking about on the Democratic side is how our democracy is supposed to work. You know, you elect the people that you think are going to do the best job, and then you expect them to go to wherever their capital is, whether it's state, local, federal, and, like, work with their colleagues to, like, get something done. And that's going to require compromise, and that's going to require being able to package yourself and your policy in a way that's palatable to your peers, On the Republican side, I think what they're struggling with is they are being perceived in a lot of ways to be coming incorrectly on the policy and the packaging. You know what I mean? Like you've got Republicans who are denying January 6th, wanting to make it harder for people to vote, saying that Biden wasn't the legitimate winner. That's hard for a lot of voters to swallow. And then you've also got some of the Republican members who have just as many concerning statements as Representative Omar. So it's like both are issues and it's hard to govern well when you're perceived as being wrong, both in your approach and in your policy. So let's talk about the Republicans because they had a notable primary last week in New Jersey. So Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is running for re-election. He wasn't challenged. And on the Republican side, former State Assemblyman Jack Cittarelli beat Philip Rizzo, Hirsch Singh and Brian Levine. He got about 50% of the vote, as I mentioned at the top. He was not super closely Trump-aligned, had criticized Trump, said that Biden won the election. What were the dynamics of that race, and how expected was this win by Cittarelli? I think this is uh, maybe a nice little showcase for some of the stuff we're going to hear in the 2022 midterm elections when it comes to Republican primaries, and that's this word I keep bringing up, gradients, uh, this time gradients of Trump support. Chitterelli was seen as maybe the least Trump-aligned candidate, but that doesn't mean that he was not pro-Trump. In fact, he basically campaigned saying, look, I'm in favor of Trump's policies, 
But let's focus on New Jersey. Let's talk about Phil Murphy and Democrats in the New Jersey legislature and what they're doing. So I think it was down to Chitterelli also knowing that it's going to be really tough to win as a fully all-in Trump candidate in New Jersey, a state that Trump lost by 16 percentage points. Now, and Chitterelli did have these past comments during the 2016 presidential primary where he called Trump a charlatan, but he warmed up to him over time, in part because I, I suspect he wanted to win Republican primaries, so he couldn't be anti-Trump. You know, there are not a lot of Liz Cheney's actually out there, but maybe it's sort of the most Trump-aligned without being all-in on Trump kind of position was what where Chitterelli was. The other two candidates of particular note, Hirsch Singh and Phil Rizzo, were much more vocally pro-Trump. Singh was the only other candidate to make a debate against Chitterelli. And in that debate, he said, we know that Trump was the real winner, while Chitterelli was saying Biden did win. For instance, there's a contrast, of course. And the fact that at the end of the day was that the least Trump-aligned candidate, but still pro-Trump candidate, did win the primary. But I know we're going to talk about that, but I do think it's worth noting that those other two candidates more or less added up to win the same percentage that Chitterelli did. Um, so it's not like Chitterelli won sweepingly. I'm sure he would have won a head-to-head -head race, but I think it does show, you know, Trump is still the head of the Republican Party, and the result still does reflect that to some extent, even if maybe the most pro-Trump candidate didn't win. So that's interesting, the dogmatic pursuit of Republicans to keep putting Trump on the ballot, even though, like, to be clear, New Jersey has elected a Republican governor. Look no further than Chris Christie. Like a Republican can win in this very blue leaning state. It's kind of similar to Maryland in that sense. But what's fascinating is like on paper, Chitterelli is obviously the self-evident general election candidate. You're not going to win in a state as blue as New Jersey by just being bombastically pro-Trump, anti-democracy, it's kind of why, you know, Hogan in Maryland is keeping things a little closer to the car. He's been critical of Trump. That plays well with Maryland voters in the electorate. I think you could make a similar argument in New Jersey. But to what Jeff was getting at, the fact that Chitterelli on his own versus like the two opposition candidates, like roughly earning the same amount of the vote, like that is indicative of how everything is increasingly national, even though it would be better for New Jersey if New Jerseyans want to elect a Republican governor to consolidate around a candidate who might have more general election appeal. Yeah, I've been thinking about whether I think a Chitterelli would have been successful in a state like Georgia, and I don't know. And again, our test will be in 2022 with our Republican primary for governor. But it looks like at the grassroots level and even the state Republican Party had a conference last weekend. And right now they're projecting that they won't tolerate a candidate that isn't all in for Trump. It's not enough to just say you agree with Trump and his policies. You've got to support the big lie. You've got to support these election bills and audits still that some Republicans are calling for about the 2020 general election. And so I don't know if other states that are more conservative in nature will want candidates that say, hey, I like the guy's policies, but I don't want to talk much about him. Yeah, it seems like there's an interesting divide here. Well, obviously there are policy divides, but also a divide between Democrats who are very interested and focused on how their candidates present to a general election audience and Republicans who don't seem that interested. Why is that? That's a great question. <laughs> I think Democrats, for better or for worse, are coming off of the like disappointment and lessons learned from four years of Trump. So I think Democrats are more razor focused on we didn't like what we had to go through for those four years, and we want to make sure we elect candidates that give us the best chance to not repeat that by electing more leaders that are along the same vein as Trump. Whether they're going to be successful or not, we can't predict right now, but it's clear with like Biden's win and the Georgia runoff that that's something that Democrats are putting a premium on right now. And I just think Republicans right now don't have an issue with most Republicans in general, the Republican Party sees the Trump years as a success. So they're not necessarily running away from electing more Trump-ish leaders. Yeah. But why doesn't Biden's win stir up this, oh, we need electable candidates because we don't like Biden and the policies of the woke left attitude that would 
maybe get them to just want to win at all costs with whichever candidate they think could do it. Well, that's what they should be doing. But unfortunately, the big lie is what is taking precedence. So Mm. instead of studying why they lost, they're saying the election was stolen from us through fraud and mismanagement. And so they're focused on pushing policies and changes that fall in line with that narrative because they refuse to acknowledge that it was like, no, your candidate lost because the American people chose something else. That's just not where they are right now. Yeah. There also seems to be this weird dance around turnout in the sense that, yes, Biden won, but the second highest turnout went to Trump. And I think the Republican leadership, like McConnell, knows he's not motivating that portion of the base. And they're so frightened of losing that that I think that's kind of what rhetoric of Trump's can we lean into and still have a functioning party? And I think we're seeing the boundaries of that tested currently. What I don't fully understand, though, is in like the example of New Jersey, if they want to win New Jersey, why then was it such a competitive primary where you were testing the boundaries of Trumpism in a state where Hurston wasn't going to win statewide in that election. You know, he lost the 2020 Senate race against Cory Booker. It's just like why the GOP isn't taking more of a nuanced approach to how they win elections in the same way where it's like progressives are making inroads in really blue districts. I kind of think the GOP needs to like really red districts. Sure, make those all Marjorie Taylor Greene. But you need other parts of the country that are more centrist to vote for you. Okay, so to just clarify here, we are actually talking about an election in which Republicans chose the more broadly appealing candidate. And yes, it did divide up the electorate, as Jeff said, but the actual margin wasn't close. I mean, Chitterelli won with about 50% of the vote, and the next highest vote tally was like 25%. And then Virginia, it wasn't a primary. They ended up choosing the like less Trumpy candidate at a convention so I don't know, should we say that, like, yes, Republicans have gone all in on just the big lie and getting Trump-aligned candidates, or is there a real debate here and sometimes the less ardent one is winning? I think it varies state to state. I think that's my takeaway, because that's not what is happening in Georgia. And maybe it's because in a state like Georgia, a pro-Trump all-in big lie candidate could still win statewide in Georgia. It's harder than it was maybe, you know, even five years ago. But Brian Kemp, our current governor, beat Stacey Abrams. And it wasn't called Trumpy back then, but it was everything except for the big lie, really. And so I think it's still varying. And even I think it was Sarah who mentioned, you know, Mitch McConnell is not turning his back on Donald Trump or even he dials it down, then he turns up the volume back on his Trumpyism, depending on what's the topic of the day. Yeah, I think you're right, Galen. There's more debate than I'm giving it credit for. Like the margin in New Jersey was not close, as you say. But the fact that like we were having that debate to me is still telling. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. And, you know, in Virginia, for instance, the whole reason why they didn't have a primary was because, you know, the powers that be weren't so sure how that would go. And that's what I find fascinating is, Tia's right, it's still very state to state, but there's definitely this tension that's there of like, well, how far can we push it? Because like, Trump didn't win. There were problems with his strategy. And you think you would want to see more self-reflection among the Republican Party about, yes, how do we maximize the base, but how do we not alienate voters who we need to win in XYZ states? We're going to get this tested out a lot in 2022, and I think there are a number of Senate primaries in particular in states that could be pretty competitive in the general election, like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, of course, North Carolina. You know, These are places, Wisconsin, where depending on how like the Republican primary goes in, in the places where at least there are open seat races on the GOP side, this sort of gradients of Trumpism and whether a candidate who has stood back at least a little bit from Trump or a candidate who has gone all in on every aspect of Trumpism, the big lie and that sort of thing, how that pans out. And I think it is going to vary a lot state to state, and it's going to be pretty uncertain at times. You know, I think about a state like Arizona, the attorney general, Mark Burnovich is running there. And I think he's sort of viewed as a pro-Trump, but not all in on the big lie. He's gotten criticism from President Trump himself. And 
I think he would be the pick of a lot of people in the GOP establishment to be their nominee because he might be seen as the best statewide candidate having one statewide office. But maybe that gets him in trouble in the primary because he's not just 100% all in on Trump. And we just don't know yet. But New Jersey is not Arizona. Arizona is a state with probably a, a larger block of conservative voters, and they're going to be voting in a Republican primary. And so how that plays out is obviously going to be fascinating. Right. And they're also, like you said, gradients. I like that because I'm thinking even to Georgia, I just mentioned Brian Kemp. He's not the most pro-Trump candidate anymore. He's got someone running to his right. So if he wins, we'll be talking about how Brian Kemp was the less Trumpy person to win the primary, even though he was very much aligned with the president until all the election stuff happened. Right. It's complicated to even try to describe because we would say like a more Trumpy candidate is running to Brian Kemp's right. But like, what even does that mean? Does it mean they're the more conservative? Usually we think right, left, more conservative candidate. But you have like rock rib Republicans who are super conservative, who are being outrun on the Trump axis, but certainly not being outrun on the conservative axis. And so we almost need new language to talk about these gradients as you've described them. We're going to continue tracking these kinds of debates over the next year and a half. This makes me think about another conversation that we should have is like, who is actually voting in primaries? But we're going to have a lot of time to talk about all this stuff. For now, let's talk about everyone's favorite topic, which is taxes. But first, people who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. When President Trump took office, one of the biggest Republican priorities was cutting taxes, which they did by over a trillion dollars in 2017. During the Democratic primary, the candidates debated just how much they should raise taxes, which sorts of wealth to tax, and on whom. Now Biden is proposing raising capital gains and income taxes on Americans making over $400,000 a year to pay for his infrastructure plans. The proposed top rate would return to what it was before Trump's tax cut. Corporate taxes would go halfway back up to what it was before Trump lowered it, so it would go from 21% today to 28%. Republicans have rejected those proposals, and a bipartisan group of senators is now debating how big to go on infrastructure and how to pay for it. Amidst this debate, a new report from ProPublica shows just how relatively little the wealthiest Americans pay in taxes. So, Tia, you are in the Capitol all day long. What is the current state of debate amongst lawmakers over how much to raise taxes for infrastructure and other social service spending and where it should come from? Well, that's been a big sticking point because Republicans have basically said They're not into raising taxes at all. It's pretty much a non-starter. When they've been coming up with their counter offers to President Biden when it comes to his infrastructure package, they've looked at other things as a way to pay for it. And as a result, the package itself has been much smaller than what Biden has wanted. And again, President Biden has really wanted to do something bipartisan, but Eventually, in the next few weeks, he's going to have to decide whether that's something worth continuing to pursue or if Democrats can just go it alone through the reconciliation process. But Biden would like to raise taxes. Republicans, that's one of those tried and true Republican things, and they're just not willing to even really consider that right now. So it seems like this is one of those perennial political debates in America that have very relatively clear positions between right and left. When it comes to the polling, where do Americans come down? Do they think that wealthy people and corporations should pay more in taxes? Generally speaking, uh, I think polling shows that people are supportive of raising taxes on the rich. However, a lot of people in this country identify as middle class. And some polling from Gallup showed that Well, roughly half of people said that the middle class was paying like their fair share and like 43% said they were paying too much. And so I'm just thinking about that in the context of how people identify and how a huge chunk of this country would call itself middle class, even though if you were actually breaking it down by income and trying to actually figure out what the middle class is, it would have to be far smaller. (laughs) You know, 80% of the country is probably not middle class or or whatever the figure is, but it's high like that. And a lot of times when people are asked to self-identify class. So I think it's a situation where people view the uber wealthy 
as worth raising taxes on. And big corporations don't get much love either in polls. So a lot of this is how it's presented. And, you know, Republicans are going to counter any attempt to raise taxes by saying, you know, Democrats want to take money out of your pockets. Uh, and Democrats are going to sell it as we're trying to tax big, wealthy corporations and people. And just sort of how that argument is presented to the American people in the end, assuming if Democrats get into a position where they have to go it alone, direct reconciliation, those are the arguments you're going to hear. But at the end of the day, most Republicans in Congress have signed the no tax pledge for the Americans for tax reform, no tax increase pledge. So it's going to be really hard to win over many Republican votes for an actual bipartisan compromise at the end of the day. The way our democracy works is that a lot of times those with the money, the power, and the influence have an outside voice in what does or does not happen, particularly at the federal level. And so rich folks don't want their taxes raised. Big corporations don't want their taxes raised. So they spend literally millions to curry favor with candidates during the election season and then on lobbying during the legislative season so that those laws don't get changed. And it's not necessarily that they're bigger in number, but their voice is huge because they're able to put a lot of money and a lot of influence to keep those laws from changing. And to me, that's what I take away from that. The reason why our tax code has not been updated and the reason why the tax code is written in a way that makes it legal for wealthy Americans to avoid paying taxes and to pass down their wealth instead of paying taxes on it. Well, that's legal because they were able to get the laws written in a way that helped them keep their money. Yeah, that was one of the things that stood out to me the most about the ProPublica report. You know, there was some criticism and like talk amongst ourselves, too, about this idea of, well, what was really new in that? I think the argument is it's more detailed than ever. I also don't know to what extent the like taking out loans so you could like register losses was really well documented before. But it made me rethink here. Warren Buffett has planned to give away most of his wealth before he dies. But they had this great quote from him in the article where he says, I support tax reform, but I also think it's better if like I give the money away on my terms, saying I believe the money will be of more use to society if dispersed philanthropically than if it is used to slightly reduce an ever-increasing U.S. debt. And it's just like what was so interesting to me in that is here is a man who has chosen to give away a lot of his wealth, but he still wants to do it on his own terms. He's also kind of showboated like, hey, Obama, raise my taxes, yeah. right? Like he's been out front saying rich people like me don't pay enough in taxes. Right. Whereas like then most of the discussion centers on the income tax. And again, I thought that was what the ProPublica piece did well is like even if Biden gets his wish and they raise the income tax, that's not going to impact the super wealthy. Probably still like the marginally wealthy, like people who are doing well, but not the Jeff Bez Bezos of the world. For that, I think we have to rethink what is wealth. All right, so here's some of the data that was published in that ProPublica report. Quote, our analysis of tax data for the 25 richest Americans quantifies just how unfair the system has become. By the end of 2018, the 25 were worth $1.1 trillion. For comparison, it would take 14.3 million ordinary American wage earners put together to equal that same amount of wealth. The personal federal tax bill for the top 25 in 2018 was $1.9 billion. The bill for the wage earners, so those millions millions of Americans, but making the same amount of money in total was $143 billion. Obviously, that's big difference between $143 billion in tax burden versus $1.9 billion in tax burden. Now we look at the polling. So Pew has recently, as recently as April, conducted polling on how Americans think about tax burdens and what part of the tax code they think is fair or unfair. So they ask basically, how much do certain things bother you? And when it comes to the question of Corporations don't pay their fair share. 76% of Democrats said that that bothered them a lot. 38% of Republicans said that that bothered them a lot. So a lot of Republicans there. The same went for wealthy people don't pay their fair share. It was 78% of Democrats said it bothers them a lot. 36% of Republicans said that it bothers them a lot. This report kind of gets exactly at that frustration. We have overwhelming beliefs among Democrats that it's not fair, basically divides the Republican Party when it comes to whether or not that is fair, why is this politically difficult? And does it seem like this is part of 
uh, cresting wave that will change how politicians ultimately think about taxes? Or is this just interesting data, but the status quo over the past several decades stick? I mean, I think part of it comes down to the fact that you might see 38% of Republicans saying that, but the majority of Republicans are probably the ones doing most of the nominating. I mean, if more people aren't saying that bothers them a lot, and I'm just imagining when people are making their picks in Republican primaries for candidates, you're going to generally see people saying, I'm not going to raise taxes uh, when they even talk about taxes these days, because the majority of Republicans view that as like something that's important, that you shouldn't increase taxes. And so I'm just thinking about in terms of the electorate that is electing roughly you know, half the people in the U.S. Senate who are Republicans are generally anti-tax. And that has consequences when you get to Washington, where it's like, well, maybe there's a two or three Republicans who might be on board with some sort of infrastructure compromise, but to actually get enough to get through cloture, to actually pass it without having to go through the reconciliation process is really hard because the people who were elected, these Republicans who were elected, have they have no interest in raising taxes because they've said they won't and they kind of oppose it on moral principle. So that was such a fundamental building block of your attitudes like that. It's very hard to overcome. And I also think that the anti-tax candidates and organizations, which generally are aligned with Republicans, have really pushed the trickle-down narrative. And the data doesn't always play that out. Like, you think about the Trump tax cuts, you know, a lot of people, middle class and upper class, got more money in their check, but it didn't necessarily trickle down to, like, lower prices necessarily, or like companies had record profits, but it's not like they cut the cost of your iPhone. But that trickle-down narrative is something that the business lobby in particular really pushes. So they say, if you raise our taxes, it's going to have a negative effect on everyone, even if you're not the one who has to pay higher taxes. Because if you raise taxes on my business, I'm going to make you pay for it too. And that also makes it unpopular for tax increases, even among people who wouldn't be directly affected. And I think that's an education thing, that's a marketing thing, but that's a hill, another hill for those who want to raise taxes for them to climb. And it just makes it so politically difficult to raise taxes at any level, but particularly the federal level. I was surprised at the extent to which this ProPublica article revived, at least among Democrats, debate around the wealth tax, whether they should try that, particularly as I think it came to light that a higher income tax is not going to impact these mega wealthy people in the U.S. But I think it goes back to what Jeffrey and Tier are saying about there's just this baked in ethos among Republicans when it comes to taxes and tax aversion. I mean, we saw some of the like fiscal debt and concerns around that atrophy in the Trump administration where they kept spending up and up and up, but it was Republican in office. It does present, though, this interesting challenge of like the majority of Republicans are still telling pollsters like Pew that they don't think businesses should be taxed more, that they don't think wealthy individuals should be. But as you noted, Galen, like, you know, a sizable minority is saying, well, I feel differently. And if the GOP is trying to rebrand itself as the party of the working class, that seems to me to raise like some major issues in terms of who are they fighting for and how do they sell that to the electorate come November? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. We've talked on this podcast over the years about whether or not there is some sort of class-based, education-based realignment going on here. We've seen more recently Republicans' relationship with corporate America strained somewhat as they've accused tech companies of censorship or a lot of companies of being overly woke, as they would describe it. Some like Senator Josh Hawley talking about trust busting. So it seems like that relationship has strained. After this ProPublica report, we also heard from retiring Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, essentially who was an author of the 2017 tax cut, saying, My intention as the author of the 2017 tax reform was not that multi-billionaires ought to pay no taxes. I believe dividends and capital gains should be taxed at a lower rate, but certainly not zero. So maybe this is something to watch. I don't know if there's more to say than that, that like maybe some of this ethos of anti-tax could be chipping away. I I don't know if this is anything more than messaging or if you guys have thoughts on that. I think it's mostly messaging because so many Republicans have said, I will not increase taxes under like any circumstances. That no tax pledge thing has been 
going on for a long time since I think what the early mid 1990s and has taken a rather large hold over the fiscal views of the Republican Party and getting attacked as a tax raiser in a Republican primary would be a potentially effective attack, I can imagine, if you did go along with something that increased taxes or was claimed to have increased taxes. So thinking about that political risk and the broad Republican position on taxes, that kind of quote is mostly just messaging. Do you think it's an effective attack against Democrats in a general election, being a tax raiser? I'm not sure it's that effective anymore. Again, I think it also comes down to the messaging. And if Republicans can make a claim that the middle class is paying more because of some Biden tax hike or something, maybe that has potential. But at the same time, if Biden and Democrats in general can make the claim that we're trying to tax the rich more and wealthy corporations, like the polling on that is pretty clear that people are okay with that. So it may just come down to sort of a messaging battle and Maybe Republicans have been better at that to some extent on things like health care, for instance. Thinking about, obviously, Obamacare back in 2009-10 and that midterm election. So it could be very important how that messaging goes for the fate of the two parties in the 2022 midterm. All right. Well, let's leave it there. This will all play out in due time. Thank you, Tia, Jeff, and Sarah. Thanks, Gail. And thanks for having us, Gail. Thank you. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.